We've been doing a brief sermon series on temptation over the last few weeks, and this is the fifth one in that series. And I just wanted to start off by just sort of quickly giving us the definition of temptation that we have been working from. Uh, we've been sort of borrowing from John Owen's definition, and it was this. Temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the mind and heart of a person away from obedience to God towards sin in any degree. This is the idea that we're talking about this morning, the idea of temptation. We want to talk about what temptation is because it is something that we all face as Christians. And then we subtitled this sermon series, Know Your Enemy, Know Your Friend. The enemy there is Satan, and of course the friend is God, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to temptation, Satan's working against you, and the triune God is working for you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, as Lee just read for us. But I want you to also put a bookmark in Psalm 91. If you've got your Bible open, turn to that one as well. Have that noted. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Psalm 91 a little bit later as well. But we've turned to the temptation of Jesus in uh, the wilderness because we can learn a lot about our enemy in just these few verses. It's interesting. Uh, in Scripture, Satan is described as both a snake and as a lion. And both of those animals can sneak up on you. Right? You Imagine a snake slithering through the grass until it can get close enough to strike you. Or you can imagine a lion prowling around in the darkness until it has an opportunity to pounce on his prey. And both of these images help us to understand the nature of Satan, who he is, and the nature of his attacks. He is subtle, he is crafty, and he has the capacity to do a lot of damage. And so this morning we're going to focus on Just one aspect of the tempter's attack on Jesus, which is his misuse of Scripture. John Bunyan was a preacher and an author in the 1600s. He wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Some of you probably know his more famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. But this book is an account of his own spiritual journey. It's an autobiography, really. And in this book, Grace Abounding, he recalls a period of time in his life where he was really desperate. He deeply questioned his own salvation. And it was a period in his life that lasted about a year. He described it as a season of spiritual warfare, where he was tossed back and forth between taking joy in God on one hand and then distrusting God on the other. He was tossed back and forth. And Scripture was at the center of this war. There were certain passages of Scripture that were used to stir up a great deal of anxiety in John. As an example, Romans chapter 9, verse 16 says that salvation, quote, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so John Bunyan reads this verse, and he begins to question his salvation. How could he know whether or not God had had mercy on him? Was there anything that he could do to gain salvation in and of his own self? Could he have control over that? Could he know And so the tempter prodded those thoughts that came to his mind along. Said something like, you're right, John. You might as well stop worrying about Christianity altogether. You'll never know if God has saved you, so you might as well quit pursuing Christ now. And at the time when he had these thoughts, he didn't realize that it was a temptation of the devil at all. Uh, He thought that he was just reading through scripture himself and coming to his, his own reasonable conclusions. And Satan even used his own anxiety about his salvation against him using scripture. 
Because in Isaiah 57, verse 21, it says that there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So he's like, oh no, I don't have peace. I must be wicked. And so he understood that scripture to mean his lack of peace meant that he was wicked and that God couldn't love him and he couldn't truly be a Christian. Satan brought that to his mind to use it against him. But there were, of course, other passages of scripture that brought him back from the edge of falling away from the faith altogether. Romans 8.35 told him that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ. Jeremiah 3.4 taught him that though they had done all the evil they could, Israel was still invited to cry out to God, My Father, you are the guide of my youth, and to turn back to him. And he was encouraged by 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he had this breakthrough moment. And I don't want to read this passage. There's a, it's kind of lengthy. There's three slides here. But I want to read this brief passage. This is from Grace Abounding from John Bunyan. He says, I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and considering the enmity that was in me to God, that scripture came into my mind. He hath made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. So John Bunyan was helped by the Holy Spirit and by counsel from friends and from his pastor to see how Scripture actually should give him a very strong reason to be joyful and to be confident in his salvation. But notice, friends, that John Bunyan was being tempted to distrust God by Satan. And Satan used scripture to do it. Is this a temptation that you might be familiar with? Uh, There's in the gospel accounts a few different places where it says that there is an unforgivable sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you've read that and you wondered, I wonder if I've committed that unforgivable sin. Could I ever actually be saved? And then Satan can use that small kernel of doubt against you to drive a wedge between you and your God. He can use it to tempt you to despair of God's love and try to drive a wedge between you. Here's what we need to know this morning. Satan perverts God's word in order to deceive us into disobedience. We need to be aware of this so that we can have just an ability to give a general defense against these sorts of temptations. So here's what we need to do. We need to practice discernment. Discernment. We need to watch carefully that we're not being led into error by the devil. That's what discernment really means. It's an ability to tell the truth from a lie. And discernment is central, it's foundational to discipleship. Disciples must discern. So when you think of or hear an idea about God or about Jesus or about man or about the gospel or anything, and you think, I don't know about that. That seems a little bit weird. Don't just accept it blindly. Because any error in basic, core Christian doctrine can lead you away from God and towards the tempter. So, our big idea this morning is this. Satan twists scripture to tempt your soul. Satan twists scripture to tempt your soul. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for his help this morning. 
Father, we uh, come to your word and recognize the fact that there is a spiritual reality present there. And that this morning there is spiritual warfare going on. We can be distracted. Uh, help us from being distracted this morning. We can be distrustful. Keep us from being distrustful. Help us to love you. Help us to trust your word. Help us to submit to its authority because we know that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. You've written it and you've given to us for our own good. Keep us from the temptations of the devil to distrust you, to distrust your word. Help us now. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were not with us last week, we talked about the first temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. And I'm not going to recap or rehash everything that we talked about last week. If you would like to hear more of that, more of the context, it's available on our website. You can find it on iTunes as well. But I do need to quickly recap what we talked about last week so that we know where we're at this morning. Last week we explained that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we read about this in Matthew's Gospel here. And in Matthew's Gospel, which is where our sermon text is, he's going out of his way to make sure that we know that Jesus is going to be the obedient Son of God that Israel never was. Jesus is going to be that obedient Son of God that Israel never was. If you recall, Israel was in the wilderness. They were tempted. They were discontent. Uh, They gave in. They grumbled against God. They said, you're not providing for our needs. But in the first temptation in verses 1 to 4 of Matthew 4, uh, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter approaches him, and he knows that he is hungry. Jesus is hungry. And so Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. But Jesus replies. He says, he quotes scripture to him. And he says that he needs bread, more than just bread, to live. Uh, Man does not live by bread alone. I need more than that. I need every word that comes from the mouth of God. He needs God's words to sustain his life. Now, last week, after that sermon, a couple folks came up and asked me a question. I thought it was a very good question. And I told them that I would think on it a little bit and come back to them with a, a response. But it was such a good question that I think it's worth sharing with everybody here this morning. The question was this that they had last week. We talked about the temptation of Jesus. But if Jesus is God... And God cannot be tempted. In what sense can we say that Jesus was tempted? Great question. Super glad it was asked. It is true that Jesus is God. Totally. He has a divine nature. He cannot sin. Fact. But we do have to hold on to the same time that Jesus was truly human. Jesus is truly human. He was genuinely tempted. I think we can say that with all faith. He was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days. He wanted bread. He was tired. He was fatigued. This is all true. There's no doubt that he wanted to eat bread. But the thing is, Jesus wanted to obey the will of his father even more than he wanted bread. But because he didn't sin, that does not mean that he was not tempted. Does that make sense? Does that track? I think C.S. Lewis had a very good insight here. He said that only someone who is able to resist temptation actually knows how strong temptation is. Someone who gives in to temptation after about five minutes doesn't know how hard it would be an hour in, right? That makes sense, right? Someone who gives in to temptation is not going to know how bad it is. And so, in other words, I think we can genuinely say that Jesus knows way more about temptation than we ever will. Uh, he was tempted in every way that we were, and yet without sin, as Hebrews tells us. But he never gave in to it. So, I hope that answers the question. 
So Satan wanted to give in uh, Jesus. He wanted Jesus to give in to his hunger and to provide for his own physical needs. Now here's where we need to slow down a little bit and look carefully at this text. I want us to notice two things about Jesus' response in that first temptation. First, Jesus says he trusts God. And second, he used Scripture as the basis of his authority. He's submitting to Scripture and trusting God. Now, we need to recognize those two things in that first temptation because Satan recognizes those two things. That's where Satan attacks Jesus next. Satan, you have to notice how sophisticated this temptation is. His first attack was to get Jesus in his weakness through his grumbling, growling stomach. But now in this second temptation, Satan listens to what Jesus said, he pivots, and he responds by attacking Jesus now at his strongest point, his faith in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, Satan says, all right, If you trust God to provide for your physical needs, why don't you just jump off this tower, see if he saves you. After all, it is written that God will send angels to catch you, and you won't even get hurt. It's in the Bible. Just pause and notice that. Satan says it is written. Satan is attacking the word of God by using the word of God. Let that sink in for a minute. There is a reason that Satan is described as being crafty. It's not because he's good at scrapbooking. It's because his attacks are intelligent. His attacks are devious. So when I slowed down to recognize what's really happening here in this second temptation, I was, I was blown away. For most of my life, I had always just been working under an operating assumption that whenever scripture was brought to mind, it was only because the Holy Spirit had done it. But after all, if the word of God, which is our Sword of the Spirit, as it's called in Ephesians. If the word of God is that, why would Satan draw attention to that sword of the Spirit? This is what we're supposed to use in spiritual warfare. Why would Satan draw attention to the sword of the Spirit? Precisely because it is the sword of the Spirit. If the tempter can undermine our primary weapon in spiritual warfare, in our battle against sin, he's won. So if we're going to use the Bible to defend ourselves against the devil's fiery darts, it's in his best interest to neutralize that weapon. So he attacks it from within. He tries to trick us to interpret Scripture wrongly. And this is why the sermon is called Satan's hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a fancy word for the science of interpretation. It's a word used outside of Christianity. It just means how to read a text. But within Christianity, we we think about it narrowly about how do we read the Bible What does it mean, and how do we apply it? How do you read the Bible, understand what it means, and apply it to your life? That's the word for for hermeneutic. This is the word we use for it. So we have established now that Satan tempts Jesus with Scripture, but now the question becomes, I believe, what's wrong with the way that Satan uses it? What's wrong with Satan's use of Scripture? How was Satan wrongly interpreting Scripture? What was Satan's hermeneutic? I want to look at a few things that he does right first. First, notice in Satan's hermeneutic, he begins with some truth. Uh, Look at the way that he interprets scripture. He begins with truth. He gives a fairly accurate quotation from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 91. It was our call to worship text this morning to start the service, where it says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Psalm 91, in its original context, was meant to encourage the people of Israel 
to be faithful to God. And then as a general principle, uh, the righteous man, the faithful person who trusts in God will be protected by God from all kinds of evil. This is the idea of Psalm 91. So this is a psalm written to Israel about the people of Israel. But remember, as we mentioned last week and a little bit earlier here, the question that is being answered in the wilderness here by Satan, or by Jesus and by God, is this. What kind of a son will Jesus be? Will he be an obedient son in a way that Israel was not? Remember, Israel was not a faithful son of God. So the question here is, what kind of a son of God would Jesus be? Will he trust God perfectly? I think this is, this is fascinating. Notice the subtlety of the serpent here when he gives this truth. It seems here that Satan begins by rightly interpreting this passage in one major way. He understands that it's ultimately speaking about this Son of God, this Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the one who, as in Psalm 91 begins, dwells in the shelter of the Most High. It says, the Lord is my refuge in whom I trust. This is, this is about Jesus. It appears that Satan understands that Jesus is fulfilling this scripture. And so he applies it to him in a, a unique and in a profound sort of way. So we should not miss this. There's some truth to what Satan is saying. In fact, I might even go so far as to say that Satan is reading the Old Testament better than some of us do. He understands that it's all about Jesus. He has a Christ-centered way of interpreting the Bible. That's where he's starting from. And so Satan begins his use of Scripture with some accuracy. Okay, let's acknowledge that. But now let's consider some of the ways in which he then twists Scripture. He starts with truth, but then he twists the truth. And here's a couple of ways that he does this. There's about three that I noticed. Satan skips a part of the passage. Satan skips over a whole part of the passage. You might not notice this at first. But if you have Psalm 91 bookmarked, if you've got it there in front of it, uh, flip there with me and look at verse 11. Satan said that God would command his angels concerning him, but he leaves out the second line of verse 11, which says, to guard you in all your ways. So he leaves a bit of the verse out. And without that line, the twisted way he applies it might make a little bit more sense. It's kind of clouding the meaning without having that line there. So I think that's, for the record, that's the reason why we read the whole Psalm 91 this morning, because we don't want to be like the devil and misuse the passage at all. Because when you leave a part out, you might end up reading it wrong. And then if you read it wrong, you might end up with the wrong application. And that's what Satan does. So first, he skips a part of the passage. But then second, Satan gives a skewed application. He gives a skewed application. And so if you read that whole verse, it's very clear that the faithful person would be given protection as he goes about his day in all his ways. But if you take that line out, then it looks like this faithful person just has a blank check to be careless and to see how much he can give away, get away with to see if God will protect him. It's to encourage them, though, the psalm originally was to encourage the person who holds fast to God in love that they will ultimately be delivered, they will be protected, they will be satisfied. It is not an excuse to test God's faithfulness. That is not the point of Psalm 91. And so he skips over part of the passage, and then he mangles the application, and then he avoids the context. He doesn't mention what comes before or after the passage. Satan avoids the context. I love this. 
Satan quoted verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91. If you have 91 there in front of you, look at verse 13. If he had just kept quoting Psalm 91 verse 13, he would have seen where it says, You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So this verse here describes how this faithful person, who we now understand to be Jesus, will trample the lion and the snake. Those two deadly animals that describe Satan in the Bible. So it sounds a lot like Genesis 3.15, if you remember that verse. Just after Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden and they disobey God, there's a curse. And God curses the serpent. And he says this to Satan, the serpent. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here in the garden, the, the, the promise is made, it's foreshadowed, and here in the wilderness now, we're seeing this acted out. So when the offspring of Eve one day would crush the head of the tempter, but Satan, in his pride or his arrogance, his stupidity, I'm not quite sure, he leads Jesus right up to the passage that is a reminder of Satan's death warrant. This, by the way, might be a good opportunity for you if Satan tempts you to despair and reminds you of your past Remind him of his future. Satan, in his pride, his arrogance, I don't know what it is, he brings him right up to this death warrant. Maybe he thought he could just slip it past Jesus. Maybe Jesus doesn't know verse 13. But Jesus knew his scripture well enough to know that he was interpreting it all wrong. Satan had a bad hermeneutic. And so Jesus replies to Satan, what does he say? Not today, Satan. He turns to Deuteronomy 6. He says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Israel tested God's faithfulness in the wilderness. But Jesus would not do that. He didn't need to ask God to demonstrate his faithfulness because he fully trusted it. He already fully knew that God was perfectly faithful and to test God's faithfulness would have been an act of faithlessness. But Jesus resisted this temptation in a way that Israel did not. And we see in Matthew 4.11, after that third temptation, that Satan flees, and God does command his angels to come and to minister to Jesus, probably supernaturally providing that, that bread that he needed so badly. So Jesus was faithful in the, in the wilderness, and his faithfulness is our faithfulness when we trust in him and in him alone completely as our only hope of salvation, of ever being reconciled to our God, to our Father. But I want to just take a few moments to just kind of hammer out this idea of how does Satan twist Scripture in order to attempt to, to, to tempt our souls? What does this mean? How does this happen today? What does this mean for us? Now think about how many false religions there are out there that reference Jesus or reference the Bible in some way. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian Science, Prosperity Teachers, uh, even the, the Muslim Quran mentions the Bible, misuses it. We're surrounded by lies about the Bible all the time, and we really shouldn't be surprised it happened in the garden. You might have heard the saying that all truth is God's truth, and that is true. I want to say that it follows, then, that all lies belong to the devil. He is the father of lies. And so, what are some other ways that Satan tempts us twists scripture today. 
What are some ways that Satan twists Scripture today? These are not a complete list. These are the ones that came to mind. First, he avoids context. Avoiding context. You probably know that this is the most common way to wrongly read the Bible is to not pay attention to context. When you pluck a verse out of a bigger passage in the same way that Satan did, you can miss out on what that verse actually means. And I've heard some doozies recently. Uh, one person who was running for vice president in the last election cycle said that he was in favor of same-sex marriage because Genesis says it's not good for man to be alone. Of course, that's not at all what the author of Genesis had in mind. Or there was a woman who serves as a medium for a large church in the East. And so she claims that she can speak with the dead, and she sees this as a gift because she's able to give comfort to people who have questions about the afterlife. She sees it as a gift, and James says, after all, every good and perfect gift comes from God, so God must want me to do this. But the Bible very clearly says that we should not try to communicate with the dead, very clearly. Or even worse, there's a person in the East Valley, the metro area here, who planted a church who is inferring that in the end everyone will be saved. Because he says, well, in 1 Timothy it says that God desires for all men to be saved. And doesn't God get what God wants? So don't we really need to be concerned with faith and repentance? It's not really that important because in the end, everybody's going to be saved anyway. That is not at all what 1 Timothy means. If you read the verse in its context. So if you ignore the context of verses and you don't pay attention to what they truly mean, what's going on before and after the passage, you can get sucked into believing lies very quickly. Another way that Satan twists scripture is by attacking its clarity, attacking the clarity of scripture. Remember the Garden of Eden? Uh, The serpent approaches Eve and says this, has God really said? Maybe you've heard someone say something like that today. They might say something like, well, you know, that passage is open to interpretation, or people disagree about what that really means Now listen, there are definitely some difficult passages in the Bible to interpret, no doubt. But when it comes to very basic truths about who God is, about who Jesus is, what what Jesus did, about who we are, about what sin is, all these things are crystal clear and explicit in the Bible. But there are sometimes passages in the Bible that we don't want to be clear. We just don't like them. And so we will undermine them by saying they're just too hard to really understand. That's really just a subtle way of denying that God has revealed himself to us clearly, that he's revealed his will to us clearly. The Bible is able to be understood by anyone who believes it and is willing to follow it. There's one more way that he twists scripture. Denying the sufficiency of scripture. Denying the sufficiency of scripture. This is very important. Notice where Jesus goes as his authority in those temptations in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus is hit with an ethical question, if you will, and he goes directly to Scripture. He doesn't say, hmm, let me see what the Spirit says to me about this. Because he already knows what the Spirit said. It's in the Bible. He already knows what the Holy Spirit, he says, you should not test the Lord your God. That's what the Holy Spirit said. It's in the Bible. What more can he say than to you he has said? The Bible is enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do to trust him, to obey him. The Bible is enough. Now, I do believe that we are guided by the Holy Spirit throughout our lives, totally, absolutely. But the Holy Spirit's never going to say anything that is contradictory to what he's already said in Scripture, what he's already revealed in Scripture. 
So the Bible is our rule of faith. It is our guide by which we evaluate all truth claims. This is what Jesus is showing us here in the wilderness. He returns to Scripture over and over and over again. Now let me just caution you. If you are ever tempted to think that you need to hear from God outside of Scripture, be very careful with that. There are plenty of very popular teachers out there that will guide you into thinking that the Bible is not enough. That you really need to have some sort of personal message from God that comes to you in an experience outside of Scripture. Like maybe you should go grab a pen and then just sort of write things down and see what comes out. And maybe that was a message from God. Listen. Bless you. The desire to be guided and directed by God in your life is excellent. That is a brilliant desire. But we don't need more than what God has already said. He's given us what he needs us to know. If you want to hear God's voice, open the word. We don't need more than that. His word is sufficient for us. You might notice on the back of your worship guide, if you have one of those, there are little arrows, like up arrows and down arrows, that you'll see and notice in different elements of the service. The idea there is that when we read God's word, if you can see that when we read his word, He's speaking to us. The arrow's pointing down. And when the arrow points up, we're responding to him. It's not a perfect thing there, but it's the general guide of what's going on in the worship service. God reveals himself to us through his word, and then we respond. So we have communion with God on Sunday mornings. This is what's happening here. We are speaking to God. God is speaking to us through his word. It's a legitimate thing that's happening. But it only happens through our one mediator, Jesus Christ, and through the word that the Holy Spirit has inspired The Bible is enough. It is sufficient for all of our needs. Well, if Satan has been in the business of twisting Scripture from the Garden of Eden until today, what do we do? What do we do to resist these temptations? I want to make a few suggestions. Again, not a complete list. But how can we resist Satan's deceptions? First, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you want to rightly understand the Bible you have to be convinced that it doesn't contain contradictions. You have to sort of start there. You can bear that out as you read it and recognize that it's true. The Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, and he does not lie. So wherever you're confused about the meaning of a passage, use clearer passages to help you understand those passages that you might have questions about. Let the Holy Spirit interpret the Scripture for you, not Satan. Notice that when Satan misapplies the scripture, Jesus responds by using scripture. Uh, Satan was suggesting that Psalm 91 means that Jesus should jump off of the temple. Well, that's a questionable application or idea. And so Jesus uses a very clear passage to help him decide whether or not he should jump off this temple. No, that would be testing God. I won't do that. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Second, read scripture in light of church history. Read scripture in the light of church history. The Holy Spirit has led the church up to this point today. There are intellectual giants of faith who have come before us and have put countless amounts of thought and effort into thinking these things through. We should not be so proud to think as we cannot learn from them. If you're reading scripture, you think you've come up with some new doctrine, like, oh, nobody's heard of this before. It's probably heresy. If you think that the church has not found it and discussed it in the last 2,000 years, you're probably wrong. There is a faithful church who has held on to the core tenets of Christianity from the beginning that exists today. And we can look back and we can learn from the way that believing Christianity has interpreted uh, Scripture throughout the centuries. Third, 
Read scripture in a community of faith. Read scripture in a community of faith. You can find a lot of people who have the knowledge of the Bible, but if the Bible is read or interpreted apart from faith, you're going to be coming to some weird conclusions. It won't be properly understood. This is particularly important for young folks uh, going into college, going into university. You might go into class and hear from a professor or a teacher who is really knowledgeable about the content of the Bible, who starts to maybe undermine your faith in the authority and in the scripture, uh, the sufficiency of scripture. But unless he or she is willing to place their authority under that of scripture, he or she will never rightly interpret the Bible. Uh, It is not enough to know facts about the Bible. Satan knows scripture well, right? The demons believe and shudder. But it's another thing entirely to know and love the God of scripture. And to submit to his authority for your life. So read the Bible, listen to the inside of other believers, be at church with other Christians. I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously you're here already, but know how important this is to gain insight from them, uh, other Christians, faithful Christians, about your questions. Fourth, ask for the help of your elders. Ask for the help of your elders. Google is great for a lot of things, but it's not the the best method of biblical interpretation. It can be very hard for you to discern what is a good source of information about the Bible if you just sort of toss a big net out into Google and see what comes back in. That's dangerous. And you should know that part of the responsibility of the elders as teachers and as shepherds are given to the church as gifts by Jesus to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to keep people from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine and from the deceits of the devil. Ephesians 4.11 and following make that point. So if you've got a question, don't be ashamed to think that like it's a silly question or like, oh, I can't really ask them, this is so dumb. An elder would be more than happy to talk with you about the Bible. Don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed, come ask. And one of the ways that we as elders try to help you form your sense of spiritual discernment is through the bookstall. The bookstall is out there in the lobby, it's just been freshly redone by Mark Moore, did a fantastic job. Heather Shaw oversees that bookstall. And the idea of that bookstall really is it's, it's there to be a cultivated source for you to be able to go to and safely learn about Christianity from other faithful authors. Make use of the bookstall. You don't have to buy them there, but at least recognize what's going on there. It's not a moneymaker for us. It's really an opportunity for us to model and show what good discerning authors write. And then last, don't rely on other people's conviction about the Bible. Don't rely on other people's conviction about the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, in times of temptation, you cannot rely on what other people say about the Bible. Uh, the, the truth of it, its trustworthiness, it needs to settle down into your own heart. It's not enough in times of temptation to say, well, Josh says the Bible says this, or Mal says that, or Reuben says this, or John Piper says that. Don't depend on the beliefs of other people. Their faith will not give you the strength that you need to resist the schemes of the devil. And this, after all, was the counsel that John Bunyan received from his pastor, When John was tempted to think that God couldn't love him or that he could never know whether or not he was truly saved, his pastor told him that he needed to be deeply convinced of the truth of Scripture and of the grace of God that he's shown to us in Christ in his own heart. So, friends, if you have been tempted to doubt God's goodness or to doubt God's trustworthiness, if you've had some passage of Scripture fall on your conscience like a bag of bricks, if you desperately just want to hear from God, Cry out to God and ask him to 
convince your soul of the trustworthiness of Scripture and to set you down by his spirit and his word. Let's pray.